Welcome back to more of Dante's Ascent of Not Purgatory, with me, Robert Louis Abrahamson, on another Evening Under Lamplight podcast. We're at Canto 19 of the Purgatorio, making the shift from the Terrace of Sloth to the Terrace of Avarice. Moving from one terrace to another within one canto gives the feeling of a rapid pace upwards, and if there's, and if there's one thing that Dante seems especially good at in his storytelling... It is his awareness of how to vary and control the pacing of the narrative. So now let's begin. We left Dante at the end of the last canto falling into a dream, brought on by the confused images and thoughts arising from that rush of the once slothful penitents, as, as well as from the nightfall, and, and also, we must suppose, by Virgil's long, dry discourses about love. But we've had to wait until this canto for the dream itself. The dream arises, we're told, shortly before dawn, that time when special heaven-sent dreams are likely to visit us. A repulsive woman comes to him in this dream, spluttering, cockeyed, deformed in hands and feet, a disgusting, sallow complexion. But as he looks at her, she's changed into a beautiful form and begins singing in a way hard to resist. I'm that famous siren, she sings, who charms sailors at sea. Everyone who hears me comes to me, and they never leave because I make them so happy. That's, that sounds pretty good, I suppose, but just as she finishes singing, Dante notices another woman, a lady, standing by his side. Virgil, she says, who is this woman? And Virgil, who's also appearing in this dream, comes over to that siren and rips off the front of her clothes, exposing her chest down to the belly, from which comes an appalling stench, so strong, in fact, that it wakes Dante from the dream. Dante comes out of the dream and, as one does, looks vaguely around to see where he is, and, and there is Virgil by his side. You've been so soundly asleep that you didn't wake, even though I called you three times at least. But come on, let's get going and find that opening to the next terrace. Yes, it, it's daylight now, and the sun shines on their backs as they proceed. Dante follows Virgil along the terrace, but, but he's bent over in thought, trying to work out that dream. Whatever is bothering him, though, gets lost as he hears... A, a gracious voice directing them to the staircase right here. It's the angel of zeal, with wide-stretched wings like a swan, pointing the path to them and then fanning them with his wings, the, the moment we must guess when the pea is wiped from Dante's brow. And then the ritual blessing, Beati qui lugent, quoniam ipsi consolobuntur. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so they proceed up the staircase. Dante has returned to his burdensome thoughts and is bent over once again. What's, what's bothering you? Virgil asks, though he knows perfectly well what's on Dante's mind, but he must want Dante to speak of it himself. Well, it's that dream, Dante says. I can't get it out of my mind. I can't think of anything else. And Virgil explains the dream. That was the ancient witch who is painfully cleansed a little further on. But that's enough. Let's keep on moving. Keep looking up in expectation at the heavenly spheres. 
And yes, Dante picks up, and they arrive at the next terrace. What does he see there? Everyone lying face down on the ground, weeping and reciting from Psalm 19, Adhesive pavimento anima mea, my soul cleaveth to the dust. They've only, they've only just arrived, but Virgil, as usual, is looking for the way to leave, and asks directions to the next staircase. The reply basically tells Virgil to keep going in the direction they've been going all along, but it adds, it adds another detail. This soul, who, who doesn't see Virgil and Dante because he is facing down on the ground, assumes that Virgil is someone moving up through purgatory, not needing to spend any time at this level because he has not been avaricious in life. And so we learn that the souls here spend time only on the levels corresponding to the sins they had committed when alive. Something in that soul's answer has attracted Dante. He gives a questioning look to Virgil. Is it okay if I go over and speak with that person? And Virgil, looking pleased, waves his hand or something as if to say, of course, go right over. O oh soul, whose suffering is bringing you closer to God, Dante begins, can you take a minute out of your weeping to tell me who you were and why you are all lying down like this? And because I happen to be still alive and will return to the living world, tell me if there's anything I can do for you when I return. The voice replies, Shias quod fuis successor petri. His Latin sentence means, You should know that I was a successor of Peter. Peter was the first pope. He was, though we have to work at it from the oblique details he gives us, Pope Adrian V, who, who died only a little more than a month after he was elected pope. But, he explains, that short length of time was enough to tempt him with more avarice than he'd ever expected, so much, in fact, that he began to see just how burdensome this sin was, and he repented. Late, but not too late. He explains that because the avaricious kept their eyes on earthly things and not on heavenly—remember Virgil had just told Dante to keep his eyes up on the heavens—because of this— they all spend their time here with eyes fixed on the ground, immobile, as long as it takes to get them in shape to stand in the presence of God. As soon as Dante hears that this is a former pope, he gets down on his knees in reverence. Adrian can't see that Dante is kneeling, but when Dante starts to say something, he can tell from the voice that Dante has lowered himself. And he won't have it. Why are you kneeling down, he asks. Out of respect for your high position, how could I remain standing upright in the presence of a pope? No, brother, stand up again. I'm not a pope here now, just a servant of God like all the rest of us. He cites Jesus' words that in heaven they do not marry. That is, they are all equal, and if anything, they're all married to each other. Now, please, go on your way. You shouldn't be wasting any further time here, and, and, and besides, I really do want to get back to my purifying tears. But he also adds that back on earth he has one virtuous relation, his niece Alagia, leaving it unsaid that he hopes she will pray for him when Dante tells her where he's seen him. And when Adrian finishes speaking, the canto ends. There are basically two parts to this canto, corresponding to the two different levels. 
The canto begins with Dante's dream, and then Dante's oppressive thoughts about the dream, which make him bend over like an arch, until Virgil briefly explains the dream, basically telling Dante that it's a preview of what will be coming further up the mountain, and points Dante's eyes upwards towards the heavens. Then the shift to the second half of the canto, where all the people on this terrace are lying face down with their eyes focused on the earth. Dante picks out one of the souls there who turns out to have been a pope, the first pope we have seen among the saved souls. It's taken 19 cantos until we found one. Adrian gives Dante quite a bit of his time, but then dismisses him so he can get on with his work. Dante's like some reporter who wants to interview people in the workplace, but after a while the people there have spent enough time with the reporter and really must get back to work, thank you. At the beginning of the canto, Dante gives us his usual roundabout indication of the time. Although we're not spending too much time in these podcasts on those astrological indications of the time, it might be worth noticing that Dante's time-telling here lets us know that he's under the influence of the moon and of Saturn, the two planets, or stars, that were considered cold and, and dry. I, I recall that these two planets, or deities, play a prominent part in the Testament of Cressid, that great work by the 15th century Scottish poet Robert Hendrison. In this poem, Saturn and the moon come down to punish Cressid, who has cursed the gods for the woeful state she has fallen into because her lovers have discarded her. Cold and dry themselves, they punish her by giving her leprosy, considered in those days as a venereal disease, cold and dry. But also associated with Saturn and the moon was melancholy, that debilitating depression of the spirits, the sort of thing perhaps most of the slothful souls will have experienced. So venereal disease and, and melancholy. Perhaps they can help us see the connection between the dream and the larger context. But I would like to offer another way to see this dream, as a kind of illustration of what Virgil had been speaking of, using the intellect to distinguish between what is good and what is bad. In the dream, there comes to Dante that hideous woman, so deformed she can't even speak. Remember that our innate love of the beautiful arouses a desire in us to enjoy the beautiful. But conversely, it repulses us from what is ugly or unlovable. Dante's intellect should have shown him that this woman was not worthy of being loved, and it should have alerted his willpower to turn away. But Dante seems to be suffering from sloth. He seems to be lacking the will to do the right thing. So he continues gazing at this woman. Now, recall what we said last time, that the damned souls in hell had ignored their intellectual ability to discern good from evil, and thus they had lost the good of their intellect, il ben dell'intelletto. This seems to have happened to Dante, too, in his dream. He keeps looking at her, and as he looks, she grows beautiful. He's lost the ability to see her properly as the hideous figure she is. Perhaps this is an example of the way we can sometimes be fascinated by repulsive things, craning to see what's happened at a car crash, for instance. Bypassing our intellect 
to satisfy some unworthy desire. She sings that she's the siren, the one with the power to charm anyone who has lingered too long looking at her. But then comes that gracious lady who breaks the spell. Maybe it's when we turn from the ghoulish vision to real beauty that we're able to awaken from the charm, awaken enough to call on Virgil, or here representing our intellect, who then exposes the pseudo-beauty for what it is, a stinking, repulsive thing. Now that explanation makes sense to me. It ties the dream into its context in the poem, and it seems to make coherent sense. But I have to admit, this is not how Virgil explains the dream. In fact, he seems unwilling to say very much about it. He just tells Dante that the repulsive siren witch represents the sin that will have to be purified further on. We are coming, after all, to the levels where we are purged of loving something more than that thing is worth being loved, as Dante has been attracted to that siren much more than she deserves. And so the dream, like so much else in Dante, serves a pivotal purpose, both summing up the lessons of the previous cantos and pointing ahead to what's coming up next. Now, the Angel of Zeal who does not seem like the angel of mercy just before, does not seem too bright for Dante to look at. Dante can see the wings quite clearly, but it's the voice that first attracts him. The angel performs the usual rituals, first the gentle erasing of one more P on Dante's forehead, although again Dante doesn't mention it specifically, leaving it for us to understand, and then the blessing, Beati qui lugent, Corneum ipsi consolabuntur. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Why mourning? What, what does that have to do with sloth? Well, sloth is mournful. I've spoken a few minutes ago about its astrological association with melancholy, the mournful affliction. Remember, too, the slothful souls in the inferno who are called i tristi, the sad ones. And so what this blessing seems to be saying is that those who are mournful in their sloth, who lack the joyful energy of zeal, will be comforted, strengthened, as soon as they turn from that sloth. It's the zeal itself that will dispel the melancholy mourning. Well, and now we come up to the next of the seven deadly sins, the first of the sins of loving the wrong thing too much, or what in the Inferno had been called the sins of incontinence. We're at the place of avarice. What is avarice? Well, we think of it as an inordinate love of money, and that's right, but there's more to it. We can say it is the inordinate love of all these earthly tools that inflate the ego. I like the trio of such things that the Franciscan Richard Rohr gives us, an inflated love of power, prestige, and possessions. These are things that are good in themselves, but when we confuse their role as tools and make them part of our identity, we, we've gone too far. Avaricious love is ego-driven and chooses a path that thinks only of itself, not of the larger community, and that's really what makes it sinful. It's interesting that Adrian says it was only once he was elected Pope that he was able to see how avaricious he was, and then, his intellect and will doing their job, he was able to see what a heavy burden this avarice was, and then he could repent. 
What sort of avarice might this have been? His desire for money? Perhaps, but it seems more likely that it could have been all that power and prestige suddenly come upon him as Pope. You can picture him, pleased to have won the big papal prize, the most powerful, prestigious person in the Western world. But the power and prestige were so enormous that he was able to notice how much they were oppressing his soul, stirring up more and more desire within him. And once he had noticed this, he saw his soul was going in the wrong direction and repented, which means changed direction. And so there are these souls, fettered, we're told, though it's not clear if that's literal or just a metaphor for the way they keep themselves pinned to the ground. And as they weep, they call out from the Psalms, Adhisit pavimento anima mea, my soul cleaveth to the dust. Adrian explains this as a kind of punishment because they prized earthly things so much, they now have to spend this time with their face pushed right down into the earth that they loved too much. But I want to put it a different way. I'm not saying I'm right, but that I offer an alternative or supplementary interpretation. Adrian speaks as though this is God's punishment to them, which they have to endure in pain until God is satisfied. Now that doesn't seem like the kind of God we've been seeing here. Perhaps it's Adrian's church doctrine that leads him to say this, I don't know. But, as you've seen, I prefer to see these sufferings not as punishment, but as therapy, giving the souls the very thing they need to help their healing. And in what way do avaricious people need their face in the dust as a healing experience? Well, instead of seeing avarice as being overly attracted to earthly things, can we see it as losing contact with the true earthly things? You no longer are in touch with what is going on here on earth, but live in this abstracted world of money, control, flattery. Let's look at a non-papal example. Suppose you are asked to give a talk at a local community group, and let's suppose you're vulnerable to avarice. What happens? Your ego is immediately inflated as you feel the importance of having been chosen to do this. And yes, you, pre you prepare a good presentation, but not for its own sake and not for the sake of your audience. These are the earthly things that you should be considering. No, you prepare it all the time thinking how impressed people will be, and maybe some of the people in the audience will come up to you later and offer more paid work, or you'll further your career as a public speaker. And that means more money and more appearances in the local paper, maybe even the national paper. People will ask your opinion about things and will carry out what you advise. You'll become famous and powerful and, and think of the money that, and that new car you'll buy as soon as the check comes in. Maybe a new house sooner than you thought. But wait, wait, stop. Do you see what's happened? You've left the earth far behind in these projections of power, prestige, and possessions. Your avarice has had nothing to do with anything earthly. You're a Luftmensch, as it's called in Yiddish, a man living in the sky. And this is not the kind of heavenly home Virgil tells Dante to keep his eye on, that's for sure. Or one more short example, going back to that narrow sense of avarice as the inordinate love of money. We see the person who amasses money 
through savings or the stock market, and strives to get more and more. More and more what? These are just numbers in a bank account. They have nothing to do with the real earth, until they buy a nice meal for you, or are given to charity to build a school for a poor community in a poor nation, or, or even buy that new car. But the love of money is just a numbers game. Come on, get real, get down to earth. So how do you heal from this kind of abstracted avarice? You embrace the earth, that dirty, dusty, stony, solid support of earth. It's only once you have bonded sufficiently with the earth, the real world, that you can finally heal yourself from the stain of your avarice. And look, we're given another example. Dante kneels when he learns he's speaking to a former pope, showing, by the way, that he does respect the office of the papacy, no matter how much he may have bitterly criticized particular popes who abused that office. Perhaps if Adrian V had lived to be pope for more than just one month, perhaps he would, he, perhaps he would have become corrupted by this avaricious position. He says he repented, though, and, and we must believe him. Well, get up! Adrian admonishes, clearly a little embarrassed by Dante's kneeling. As we've seen earlier, earthly distinction and roles and honors mean nothing after death. It's the pure, naked soul that we're dealing with. There's no marriage in heaven, Adrian says. All the old relationships were just roles we played when alive. Now we're all equal. And this too is something we can practice in our healed state not concerned with promoting our own ego, no longer identified with the roles we are playing in our lives, but seeing them, well, just as roles we are playing. We're free, then, to see each person we meet as equal souls in this larger human and divine community. And that, I think, will keep our feet firmly grounded in the real world. Well, with that, we'll bring this podcast to a close. In the next canto, we get the examples of generosity, the opposite of avarice, and hear from another soul on this level, and get some warning examples of avarice, and then, well, well, there's a surprise at the end of the canto. We'll just leave it at that, and meet again next time. <laughs>